welcome to the No Breaking Podcast. Today, another adventure, this time to visit my good friend, Rod Chong, Deputy CEO of RoboRace. Rod. Hello. Thank you, firstly, for uh, making the time for me and then being in the same country as me, since you seem to be an international man of mystery at this current time. Yeah, people say that. I more talk about it as a permanent state of uh, jet lag, which is slowly becoming a condition that I have to live with. And, and, and how are you feeling with this, uh, this transition to a current state of jet lag? It hasn't really settled in yet, but it's worth noting that when you travel east, and I have to cross an ocean roughly every four to six weeks, east is really, really tough. Whereas going west, it's not too bad. It's more like you've stayed up late, slept in the, the next day, and then keep doing the, the same. Do you have any uh, tips for other travelers when they do these long-haul flights as what you might have learned from these uh, sojourns across the pond? That really depends if you have access to business class or not. <laughs> That's my recommendation is uh, try and get business class because if you can sleep on the flight east, um, that has a big effect on the following week, at least at my age anyway. Um, whereas if you stay awake on the whole flight going east, you miss a night's sleep, then you have to stay up another day, and that's, that's really tough. And um, that's the main thing. The other one is stay hydrated. That's ah. hugely important. So you uh, don't go down the favorite, my, my, I will say my favorite Christmas movie, Die Hard, which is where the idea of taking your shoes and socks off and then making your toes into knuckles on the carpet, as they suggested to Bruce McClane. John McClane, sorry, I should say. <laughs> I've never heard that one. But, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of different tricks you can use. Um, I've started uh, buying, is this what we're going to be talking about? What, what, of course. travel tips. Exactly, it's a new um, thing. I buy coconut water yeah, because that, that replaces a lot of electrolytes. So I, I try and buy these before I get on the plane. And then while I'm on the plane, I'm dousing uh, coconut water try and stay hydrated because you, you become incredibly dehydrated. Um, that, that's very important. And then one should learn the trick of the NASA nap. The NASA nap? Yeah. Whereas if you sleep for 15 to 20 minutes only, take a nap, that's very refreshing to the body. And um, so if you're feeling very bad with jet lag, it's better to nap quickly and then bounce back. The trick is not to sleep too much because then it's hard. You go into a deeper state of steep state of sleep. I see. Well, I think yes. that's also a good point because we're celebrating this year's 60 years of NASA. So I think that's a very good point there, Rod. I did not know that it was 60 years of NASA. See, sharing pearls of wisdom here. Yeah. Pearls of wisdom. But anyway, <laughs> let's get into the real crux of this uh, podcast, which is trying mm. to learn about you and how you came to be in this position where you are now at Roborace. So what was it? What was the nutshell or the driving force that got you this way into, say, the, the cars in general? Where, where was that starting point for you? Have you ever heard of imprint vulnerability theory? No. Uh, for anyone, you can look back on, on your life, usually in um, early childhood, and there's a, usually going to be a series of events, key moments, um, where you're imprinted. And uh, those things will generally inform a lot of what happens to you later in life, what you're interested in what you're repelled by, what you're afraid of, what you enjoy. Uh, anything can be traced back to a series of key moments. So for me, it goes back to childhood and, um, and my family. My, my father and all his brothers are all crazy about cars. And um, so I was fortunate enough to have uh, a father who took me go-kart racing. Okay. So I grew up uh, racing go-karts from the age of six. 
And, but it's also worth noting that the go-kart track where we raced in uh, Vancouver, Canada, also had a big race car track beside it. Uh, and I was able to, I was more interested in watching the, the car races than actually racing go-karts. So I was able to see a lot of sports car racing um, when I was quite young, and that really got me very excited by cars. So is this saying that you went, in your go-kart days, you went head-to-head with Lewis and Nico, and they were, you were staring them down? Is that kind of what happened? And then you I taught them to be the racing drivers? I think drivers. out of sync by several oh. decades. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, Maybe no, they looked at the, footage of you the, and thought, this is the way we've got to move forward with this. That definitely did not happen. I, was, I actually preferred uh, building model cars, uh, drawing cars, and painting cars more on a creative level, more than racing. It's, I'm more something like a, a creative type person in, in a stereotype, you could say, or template. Um, so that's more what I was interested in doing, was the creative aspects surrounding cars and racing. And... I've carried that on through my whole career. Sure. but And so as we talked a little bit before the microphones went uh, live, you said that post-go-kart you moved into the RC world. Yes. Um, I was about 13, 12, 13 years old. Uh, it just got too expensive. Um, when I was really young, you could have a pair of tires for a season because the tires are very hard. And then the new softer compounds came in after I'd been racing a while, and you had to really start changing your tires out. And things got more and more competitive. You started to need to rebuild your engines between races, and we couldn't afford that. So we switched to RC cars. I, I loved it. Um, we switched around this golden era when uh, dirt racing was just starting. And I had one of the original RC10s, associated RC10s, and I became sponsored and raced... Um, carpet cars and, and off-road and all sorts of different things. And so which of the cars were you building at that time, back then? In terms of RC cars? Yes. Um, the one I remember most fondly is the associated RC10, and I got a carbon fiber chassis. Ooh, very and, fancy. Uh, yeah, that, that was uh, an exciting time. And do you still have any of those cars today? No, as I've... Um, some friends of mine are really into vintage RC cars, and they, they go, and, you know, you can buy a lot of the recreations, but... I try not to do that. I'm, the thing that I'm really into that's maybe slightly childish, if you want to look at it that way, is, is Hot Wheels. I, I collect Hot Wheels. Oh, okay. In fact, today I'm going to be going to the Hot Wheels convention. You are? Yeah. And what you, I, I, like, I like how you've, your face <laughs> is illuminated now when you talk about the Hot Wheels. So how many, can we ask how many Hot Wheels cars you have? I'd say about four or 500. Okay. Uh, that's relatively... I was going to say, yeah, because I think, I mean, I think I've even got close to... 40, and I'm not even a, I wouldn't even consider myself a collector, so I don't think four to five hundred's too bad. <laughs> if you were to say four to five thousand, that's what I'd think. That's yeah, that's it's really getting out of hand then. Yeah, that's getting I've up already there. got too many, then I know what to do with bins of the things. Um, but uh, it takes a while to learn more about what the collector community is about and what are the most rare models and and what you're looking for as a, as a collector. But um, yeah, yeah, it's fun. I've also started modifying them. You can. You can buy add-on parts, different wheels, and really get into taking them apart and styling them better. So what is it that you in particular look for in Hot Wheels then? What was it that, that draws you to them now, I should say? Um, a lot of this happened by accident in that um, I started collaborating with Hot Wheels uh, with Speed Hunters. And we, there's quite a few different Speed Hunters um, type of Hot Wheels that have come out over the years. And then um, when I moved over to Project Cars, we're jumping ahead to my career. But I know. When I, when really... I moved to Project Cars, 
we also did some collaborations and we integrated designs of Hot Wheels into the Project Cars 2 game. And then there was, this, I think there's about five or six that came out. We even worked with um, Hot Wheels to choose a, a car that went into the game and came out as a, as a model, Porsche 917 LH. So there was a, a collaboration there and it was along the way that I started spending more time in the Hot Wheels Design Center and became um, friends with, with one of the, the key creatives there, Juna Aime. Imai, that's how you say his last name. June that's the jet lag, it's, yes. it's fine. It and, well. um, sorry, June. And uh, he would just start giving me these, 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 uh, these uh, releases, some of the rare ones as well. And after a while, I just seemed to suddenly, without thinking about it, I had 100 of them. And I started getting more and more excited to go to the Hot Wheels Design Center so I could get more of these uh, <laughs> releases. No, so I personally like Hot Wheels because I think they're, just, they're a nice size where you can get several of them and they don't generally take up that yeah, much space. it's an inexpensive hobby. And, as um, long as you like stick to the where I shop for my, all my Hot Wheels, which is the 99 cent store. Uh, so I try and keep it... No, you got to get onto eBay. No, that's, yeah. when the, that's when you blow your budget straight yeah. out of the water there. That's, no, that's where, you where get the, the rare things are. But that's where you get yeah. yourself in trouble. With, that's, see, it's when I'm like... <laughs> I, I like but the, there's a lot of fantastic... Uh, the, the Hot Wheels team really understand car culture very, very well. And... Uh, Every year, there's some fantastic new models coming out. So then, speaking as you go into the uh, the convention, what are the cars that you're looking to get your hands on there? Um, with every of the the big conventions, there's usually a super limited edition model that you can only get there, and you have to be registered. So there's a particular, I think it's a Ford Fairlane Gasser. Oh, okay. It's only available. At the convention, and you have to—are you going to have to line up early for it? Is that what you're telling us? Or no, you can... if you're registered, you, you're able to get one uh, yeah, or two. Oh, two! Yeah, well, I'm crazy. I know. I'm just thinking—is yeah. one of these going to find themselves on eBay? That's going to be stuff people I've been, scrambling I've for. I've been considering starting an eBay uh, store, uh, but we'll see. Sure, sure. It's so just—it's just a bit of fun. Of course. Look, then they're great. They're good cars. Look, it's not <laughs> fun. I, I do like getting my my cars signed by people. Mm. So that's one of my big things that I enjoy with my Hot, Hot Wheels. Wheels. Yeah. Okay. So if I get, for example, I get the car and the person who designed it, if I can get them to sign it, then that makes me real happy. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't do that. So look, it's because <laughs> I used to get my business cards to be signed by people, and then I thought this was a more fun way to oh, do okay. it. Okay. No, I'm a, I try and get. I've, I've changed how I collect more. I really look at there's a 1955 Gasser, mm -hmm. Chevy Gasser that they have, and. So I've decided I'm going to get every single version of that. Although I've, a lot of collectors do that. They'll try and get every single iteration of a particular model. I've started thinking about doing that for the Porsche 935, 934.5 because that's another one that uh, there's only about five or six versions of it right now. And are they but, easy but to get then? I have to be careful they... not to start doing this for more and more models. Yeah, that's when it gets a little just, out of yeah, hand again. Exactly. So anyway, <laughs> so let's step away from the Hot Wheels wormhole that we could go down here yes. and go back to you post RC days yes. where you were whipping around the track at really great speed with your cars and building them. Where where did that lend you then or where did that take you? Well, the thing to note is that, and I think of any kid uh, hopefully finds out what their, their true, the thing that they're super talented at, you know, the thing that makes them, that they can do better than most people. And uh, luckily, me and my, I suppose my mother was the one that, that helped with this. Uh, we saw that I could draw really well. I used to win awards when I was a kid. And um, 
that's the thing that I was most confident. I don't think I was a particularly confident kid, but that was the one thing that I knew I was that that was happening. And um, for example, when I was a very young, I, I learned how to draw perspective, and I could come into class, and none of the other kids could knew what I was doing. Um, so that 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 energy, that confidence, um, self belief in the the creative abilities was really the core. I never had that with racing. I could drive fast, but I never particularly enjoyed being in a race. I usually felt a bit of fear, although I liked being a racing driver. I thought that was cool. Um, so that led to me taking a lot of extracurricular uh, artistic classes as a kid, and that eventually ended up with me uh, going to art college. Um, but the goal when I went to art college was that I was going to become a car designer because I used to draw cars nonstop. I draw technical schematics of cars, all sorts of things like that as a kid. Um, so that was the intent, but that's not really what happened once I got to art college. So what did happen when you got to art college? And that is the big question, the first big question of many. Well, I, I found, um, I looked at the, there was a moment where you, you do your foundation course in, in art college and you learn sculpture, painting, you learn about graphic design, different areas, color theory, uh, but then you should specialize. But I looked at the... Um, the design course, and it just seemed very boring. Like you would design, you saw the students designing garden shears or tape dispensers, and it just didn't seem that exciting. So, um, and I wanted to go to Art Center. We had an interview with Art Center in Pasadena, where they had a you know very famous car design program, but unfortunately, it was just too expensive for our family. We couldn't afford it. So, I ended up going to the um, Ontario College of Art. It's now called Ontario Art College of Art, and design, OCAD, but it was OCA back then. But I looked at this other course, it was called New Media, and it was computer graphics and video, film, electronic music composition, and it felt very modern and exciting. And it was at that moment that I got more into uh, electronic music and cross-media, and myself and a group of friends, we had this, um, this creative team, we're called um, Autonomen, and it was an experimental creative group. Looking back, it was very radical. We had a bicycle and typefaces and our own clothing. We're all into uh, industrial music. Um, so we had this little scene going, and um, that really led me to get into um, music videos and filming and things like that. So things progressed away from cars and motorsports and uh, more into audiovisuals and uh, filmmaking. So how, who were you making the videos for then at the time? Well, this creative group that we had, we made a ton of these videos. But okay. I got a summer job while I was still in college working at a post-production facility. Uh, and that facility also was where the West Coast version of Canadian MTV, it's called Much Music, was produced. And they had a blue screen studio, all these cameras. And I ended up getting a job there while I was in college. And I actually dropped out of college. And it just so happened that one of the... the uh, guys that worked there, his name is William Morrison. Um, he became a mentor of mine. He was ended. He was a music video director, and he was right into the Vancouver industrial scene. There were a lot of bands like Skinny Puppy, Frontline Assembly, uh, this record label called Network Records. So there was this electronic music scene in my hometown of Vancouver, Canada. And through him, I was able to start working with these bands and producing uh, these videos. So that really got me started working on these crazy electronic music videos music videos when I was 20. And so how many videos did you work on then? 
would you say in your your sojourn in that field? I, it's hard to say. I, I was never particularly successful, but I I worked in Los Angeles. Uh, I eventually ended up, ended up in London, pursuing this as a career. I maybe did thirty or forty, but I the most interesting things I did in that period of my that was my first career. I've had about five careers. Hey, nothing wrong with that. Um, as soon as my, one day I yeah. hope to have one career. That's my goal. <laughs> I worked with an industrial band, so I, I directed the first Marilyn Manson video, for example, and I went on tour with Nine Inch Nails and worked on a tour film with them and, you know, Skinny Puppy Frontline Assembly. Um, but I was, like I said, I was never that successful. I moved to London because I wanted to get involved with these bands like Chemical Brothers and The Prodigy and things. You know, there was a big scene there, but I, I never, I think I kind of lost my confidence when I moved there, and I, I never got to work with those bands, and things kind of fizzled out after a while. And so what did you, what was it that, uh, well, I should say about London, your first time there, mm. since you're now making trips there on the regular, what is it that you enjoy about London, and the UK in particular? Well, there's, I, I tell people that there's two cities that, that I really love, uh, Los Angeles and London, um, but as I, I was a, a punk and, and a goth as well, and I, I was very inspired by music that came out of there. If you look at all the punk music that came out of uh, the UK and post-punk as well, um, you know bands like uh, Joy Division and uh, Bauhaus, and there was a lot of other gothic-y music like Alien, Sex Fiend, and things like that that I was really into. Uh, but I also I saw the Clash when I was uh, fourteen. Oh, um, that'd be rather important for someone and sort of kickstart your career, yeah, sort of exactly. d- direction at least. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I was very inspired by a lot of the this culture that came out, and then later on um, was more into drum and bass and um, the big beat stuff and that that type of music that came out of there. So I was very attracted culturally to to those elements. There's another British band electronic band called Nitsareb that was a huge, huge influence. I tried to be Nitsareb when I was uh, in my late teens. And um, so that 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 feeling, um, we still carry on. You know, as I sit in front of you, I'm wearing all black. Yep. Oh, wait, I'm not wearing all black, but close, I used to wear all close, black. yeah. And um, in my mind, I'm still some kind of gothy punk person in my mind. <laughs> so so that, that came from the UK, and so there was a real attraction to to go there and yeah and so how long were you in the UK then for before you sort of made the moves where it wasn't quite working out as you'd hoped and you had to change the direction where you went I lived in London for 10 years Mm -hmm. from 1996 to 2006 and I went there as someone that was trying to be a a music music video director I was also doing audiovisual projects as well um experimental projects, uh, more in the realm of VJing. Uh, worked with this group out of um, Belgium called Front 242 and lived at their studio. And then I worked with this other artist, um, composer named Tom Holkenberg, who had a group called Junkie Excel. He's now one of the biggest um, composers in, in Hollywood films. But at the time, he was had an industrial band called Nerve. And then later on, he had this more electronic, big, big, a group called Junkie XL or GXL. And so I worked with them doing album covers and music videos and, and these kind of mixed media projects. And that goes back to my experience in art school is that I learned different mediums, C- computer graphics, electronic music composition, video, um, 
and that's informed that that time in that the OCA program, new media. I've always done cross media projects, which mix in CG, filmmaking, all sorts of different things, and that's definitely informed my whole career. And then, so coming out of two thousand and six, then uh, leaving the UK, where was your next stop on that train? Oh, well, what I was going to say, this Ooh. was my point. The jet lag's kicking in. Is I arrived in London with dreams of, of uh, working with the Prodigy and Chemical Brothers, having done these industrial groups, but industrial, these industrial group music videos, I should say. But that scene was fizzling out, um, and this whole new realm of electronic, I think it was called in the 90s, that was coming in, and I wanted to become part of that. But that didn't quite happen, and I left in 2006 as a video game producer and designer. So I transitioned into my second career while I was in the UK. So who was it that you started up when the video games filled in there before you were leaving in the UK then? Which, which company was it all? So it's an interesting story, and I think this is um, a story I sometimes tell people when they're trying to figure out what to do with their lives. And I thought I should be a music video director, but it wasn't really, I don't think I had the right personality for it. I'm too serious. and. Some of the ideas I have are too crazy for such smaller music video projects, which are usually four weeks long. It's probably better for me to be working on long-term projects, which take one, two, three years to execute. Um, but my my music video career is fizzling out, and I and um, I heard about this music. Sorry, I heard about this video game. It's called Sports Car GT. This is about 1999, and I heard that you could download all sorts of add-on cars that a community was making. So this was the first time I heard about modding, where people modify a video game, that's what modding stands for. And I found this very appealing, that the idea that you could create your own content for a video game or install a video game on your computer and then do different things with it. So um, I joined the community, I started lurking around, and, and um, then I connected with um, the guy named Casey Ringley, and we um, decided to create a mod team and develop our own mods for this this video, ga video game, Sports Car GT. And uh, those eventually, we built a mod team of about uh, 25 people. Our mod group was called Virtua LM, like Virtua Virtua Fighter, but Virtua LM for mm -hmm. the mall. And we created different mods. We created the 1998 GT1 field, every single GT1 car, and then we created. Um, Le Mans 1999, every single car um, could get really detailed into our passion and, and our love of sports car racing in Le Mans. And then uh, we transitioned to be working on mods for uh, EA's F1 games, F1 2001, uh, F1 2000, or F1 CS, I think it was called. And we, we uh, made a, this mod which became quite famous. It's called Prototype C. We created literally every Group C car and every IMSA GTP car ever from the 1983 to 1992. Um, and this got downloaded, and we, because of my background in doing professional media, I, I directed a few TV commercials by then and done all the uh, cross-media projects, all the music videos. So I really encouraged the, our team to be very professional with what we did. We had a complete interface, and um, we got headhunted. I see. And about half the team got jobs. And um, we teamed up. With, we got headhunted by this company called uh, Simbin, which had just finished doing uh, 
quite a well-known simulation game called GTR. So we were sort of the B team and we uh, got to work making this other project called GT Legends and I ended up being the producer designer of this game and that's how my video game career got started but the point is is that I went back to just doing things that made me happy. It made me really happy to fiddle with and modify these games and create a virtual racing cars for my passion for sports cars and motorsports and um, that led to my career finally kickstarting because in my whole 20s it was very notchy, very difficult and there was no, things just didn't happen naturally, it was a struggle and um, once I switched to gaming and racing gaming then things took off very quickly. I'd also like to thank you for your Switch because I really do enjoy those games, especially GT Legends. Big fan. Yeah. And so is my father, Nigel McKeon, who loves it. Loves it a lot. Yeah, that was a fantastic project. And then, so how did you make, and then, so was that was still all based in the UK though when you I was that? in the UK, so that was uh, 2005 when that came out. And then, it's interesting, I, I started feeling homesick, like I wanted to go back to Canada and um, Vancouver and have an easier life. And, uh, I also thought that I needed more experience. Um, I felt very uncomfortable working on, the one thing I felt uncomfortable with when I was doing GT Legends, like I didn't know enough, I didn't have enough skill. So I thought, no, I'm, and I looked back on how my first career as a music video director didn't go that well and I realized that I just didn't know enough about the craft of uh, filmmaking. You heard this concept of the 10,000 hours where you have to really learn the craft. I didn't do that. I, I had creative vision and I knew what I, I, I knew what these, I had these crazy ideas, but I didn't have the core skill set. So I thought with gaming, I'm going to put in that 10,000 hours. So I, I got a job at EA working in the need for speed games, more in middle management so I could really learn. And I tell people now that joining EA was a bit like going to college. Okay. <laughs> For a second time, but you learned so much there. And so where were you based in, in the Bay Area when you were there? Um, I moved back to Vancouver, Canada. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's where So the Black Box Studio, oh, okay. which was a very famous studio at the time where, where they made the Need for Speed games. Ah, sorry. I was getting yeah. my mixed up here from being in the Bay. So then how did that go being in middle management, going from an industrial post-punk era to wearing all black and then going stepping into middle management? Yeah, there was no more wearing all black, but I... Hopefully, you wore black shoes occasionally. Possibly, yeah. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah that, was, that was the corporate phase. Um, there was a lot to learn, and there definitely was very challenging to just to take all the, the have to learn so much about doing things. I, I say that joining EA was my, sort of my first job. I was in my mid 30s already when I joined them. Um, so. It, it was okay looking back. I, I, I had a lot to learn about just how to work in teams, learning about international business, the unspoken etiquette of business, even in a Canadian studio. And then as, as you go around the world, etiquette changes. There's a huge amount to learn. But um, it, was a, it was a very important thing to have done. And so then would you do that step straight into the Need for Speed games when it was doing that then? So I, when I joined, I joined to work on Need for Speed Carbon, and they, I had a fair amount of responsibility. I was in charge of the uh, characters, uh, producing the story elements, um, the non-interactive uh, cinematic sequences, 
Um, and then just bringing in a sense of urban style, I, helped. I was one of a couple people that chose music for the game. So I still got to bring in a lot of those, those elements of filmmaking, um, cultural referencing, and, and so forth. But gradually over time, I became one of the key people that was the car culture experts and the urban culture experts that injected street style, but also um, automotive enthusiast culture into Need for Speed, because that's what Need for Speed was about. If you think of the Need for Speed Underground games, they th before that they were doing exotic cars, and they said, no, we're going to really reflect this um, modified car culture. At the time, they said tuner culture, but it's a bit unfashionable to say that now. Uh, modified car culture, and they were injecting that into the game, and that was a huge important thing. And so it became my job to be one of the point of contacts with the scene there. So I remember in 2006, I went to Irwindale Speedway and saw my first drifting event as a D1GP event and because they wanted me to learn about what these scenes were, were like. And um, we also started doing special projects right away. We started making film projects. Um, one thing we did uh, for the next game was Need for Speed Pro Street is we produced a documentary about street racing and how drag racing, illegal drag racing, um, led to many aspects of what was then the import uh, drag racing scene and then the development of drifting, uh, illicit drifting, street drifting led to organized drifting uh, happening with the establishment of D1GP, the establishment of Formula Drift and so forth. And then we also looked at uh, time attack as well and how all, all these scenes came out of street racing. And we're looking at the interlinking between things happening on the street, modified cars, and those particular scenes. Um, so in so doing, I met a lot of people from the scene, and that laid the foundation for what happened a year later, which was the foundation of Speed Hunters. Okay. And so how did Speed Hunters uh, then go from you knowing and meeting all these people into actually being and coming to the Bahamut that it is to this day of sorts? Well, uh, one of my, my bosses and mentors at Need for Speed came to me one day because they knew that I had this background of doing these cross-media projects and, and I was you know, really into real-life racing, this fanatic for motorsports and car scenes and racing history. Um, they said, hey, we want to make a, a website. The words they used, they said, we want to make a car culture destination because they knew that Need for Speed was sampling car culture and reflecting that back into the games. Uh, the 2006 game Carbon, for example, looked at the toge racing scene, um, both the Southern California one and in Japan, and they were reflecting that. So they wanted to do that more actively and see if they could establish a website that would draw fans of these scenes together. So they just said, hey, we want you to make a website. That's all they said. Just make and, a website, yeah. and you were and, done. And so I went away, and um, I went on vacation in New Zealand and thought about it for a few weeks and um, looked at different... At the time, looked at um, these websites, uh, Trend Hunters, or uh, these street street hunting style. style uh, there's one called... Um, what is that website called? Ah. No, I don't remember. But... Um, yeah, we, we wanted to look at these trend-hunting street-style street um, um, websites where people travel in the world and look at, take pictures of people with their cool clothes. We thought, well, we should do that for cars. 
And we also looked at the trend where different scenes around the world, whether it's Japan, this I'm talking 2008, or in the UK, Australia, US, California, wherever, you'd see that these are all localized, right? You might, if you're a Japanese car fan, car culture fan, and you live in uh, New Zealand or in, um, in the US, you might go and buy Option Magazine to try and get a sense of what's happening. Or um, if you're in Australia, you might buy the local magazines, but you won't necessarily know what's happening in, in Southern California. You have no access to that. So there was no place where you could bring all these, these things together. So in terms of people that love Japanese cars, they could buy the Japanese magazines, but there was, you, there was no interconnecting of all these things. Or um, if you're into hot rodding, um, you, you wouldn't, and you're, you live in the UK or Sweden where there's a hot rod scene, you could buy Hot Rod magazine to see what's happening in, in uh, the US, but you wouldn't know what's happening in Hot Rod scene in Japan, which is incredible. So we said, well, let's create this website where we, we showcase what's happening on the ground everywhere. It's very ambitious. But we wanted to find um, these people. We eventually call, started calling them Speed Hunters and get people in different scenes uh, creating stories and uploading them. And at the time, um, the people in the, the automotive content game, there would be always a delay. If you, if you wanted to find out what happened in Tokyo Auto Salon, there's no way you would know what happened immediately. Not till like today. You, you'd have to wait at least for a magazine to, be, yeah, to yeah, come out. Or maybe someone would publish a gallery, but it probably wasn't going to happen. So we said, no, we need these things now. We want to know what's happening in Odaiba in Tokyo today. And, uh, or if we see a cool car, let's shoot it right away and get it out there immediately. And uh, so it was very ambitious, but it worked. And then, so how long within were you uh, involved with Speed Hunters then? So uh, Speed Hunters started 2008, and uh, it went until, I was there until 2014 or so. 2013-2014 I was trying to I was ready to to leave EA by then and sure and so w where did you go then post EA and Speed Hunters where was your next step from there uh, after that um, yeah, it was interesting uh, you know looking back I, I had moved to Sweden um, so the Vancouver studio slowly they were winding down producing the need for speeds there and um, the Criterion studio in the UK and then was doing them and then they, there was discussion about doing more in Sweden so I had moved to Sweden um, and was producing the Speed Hunters from there but there was a real feeling of dissatisfaction um, and the desire to more be in the center of the action it so, wasn't so the, the, so the, the, the like six months of sunlight and six months of darkness that was anything to do with that as well or maybe a little bit it was an interesting experience but um, what happened after that was um, took a little bit of time off to decide, you know, what what the next uh, thing to do was, and um, ended up going back to a company which was um, an outgrowth of what Simbin, where it worked before, and they had just produced a game called um, called Project Cars. Now it's worth noting that while I was at EA, I also helped broker um, that group to produce the Shift games. Need for Speed Shift and then Shift 2 Unleashed. I was involved with some aspects of those games as well, especially Shift 2 Unleashed. I was quite involved with that game. And um, 
so they had just produced uh, Project Cars, and I wasn't involved with that, but I got into to get involved with Project Cars too. And it was at that time that, that I progressed with what I was doing, and, and uh, they brought me in to be the chief commercial officer, and I put together a lot of the deals, the uh, licensing deals with the different uh, manufacturers. Uh, was one of a few people that also got to choose cars for the Project Cars 2 game, which is a very pleasing thing to do. I could imagine it would be. And uh, also produced a lot of films and so forth. Did that, in that role, did you still have to wear the corporate attire, or were you able to go back to your old black? What no, was that, the that's where the, the, yeah, that's where the uh, punky gothicness came back. Okay, yeah. okay. So you're a little <laughs> bit more comfortable then in your meetings at that point. Yeah, uh, it, it was necessary to... Um, I think when you're trying to progress in your career, uh, or if you want to, I don't know if you like saying executive level, but if you're trying to get there, sometimes you have to really put that persona on. So I definitely went through a period when I was at EA where I wore suits and things like that to try and project this, this feeling of wanting to move to that level. Um, but yeah, definitely now uh, I more have embraced my excitement for the future. And I've always been a big fan of science fiction and, and uh, you know, coming up with crazy ideas and executing them that that's sort of one of the what I've done with my career but I'm more embracing the feeling of futurism and how I present myself I don't know why you keep talking about clothes why do you keep talking about clothes it's, here? it's because you and your old black aesthetic that you want to go with so I just okay. thought I'd revert back to it but anyway I want to focus on the project cars too which were some of the cars that you were able to select that you were like this is like I'm so glad I was able to get this car in the game I'm a big fan of uh, Group 5 race cars. Uh, these are the cars that, that race from 1976 to about 1982. And they're GT cars, but they're completely outlandish. Some of them had seven, 800, 1,000 horsepower with big, huge wheels and giant wings. And those are the cars that I saw in the late 70s racing at Westwood, that original track where the go-kart track that I raced at. So I always loved these cars. Um, in particular, I'm a big fan of the Porsche 935. I understand that, massive fan of that, these cars. that someone might have one that's very similar to that. I have a Porsche 935 replica. Yes. It's not a real one. It's, yeah. It's mostly fiberglass. Um, and so I, underst I understand it's still getting its. Is it going to be. It was made roadworthy, was it right, in England? As from what I heard? Um, so I was at uh, this event in Sweden called Gatbil, mm -hmm. which is Norwegian for streetcar, streetcar festival. And um, although the main Gatbil uh, events are in Norway, they're incredible mayhem. Uh, isn't it? That's yeah. the one where you just get the, the the smallest car that you can, and then put the largest engine and even the biggest turbo and the yeah, imaginable. Don't don't show up with less than a thousand horsepower. Yeah, I mean that's just like <laughs> snoring there. So I was at this uh, one of the Gatbil events in uh, Sweden, and I saw this this car come in on a trailer. It's a 935 replica. It was a street legal car. Um, and I saw a for sale sign on it, so it took me about six months to figure out how to how to buy it in Sweden. And then um, I later moved to back to the UK to London, and I brought it with me. And now the car is now here in, in Los Angeles with Busy Moto. Yes, I was going to say because I saw that at Busy's garage. He's, oh, you saw it. Yes, uh, it needs a lot of work. The front of it doesn't look very good. It needs new bodywork. That's what he suggested that yeah. you might be doing with it is yeah. maybe doing some work on the front end to make it a little bit different. Yeah, it needs a lot of work. I've driven the car once. I've owned it four years. <laughs> um, most of the time, I don't remember I own it. 
and try not to because I'm sure it'll empty my bank account. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's the thing. You've got to sell a lot of, maybe move a lot of Hot Wheels on the secondary market to try and look yeah, after that car. get my eBay store going. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so what was it like, though, when you did get to drive it that one time? Well, it was an exciting time. Um, we'd rented the Top Gear track. <laughs> and um, and uh, we had been doing runs in different cars to sound record them. And uh, so we'd put mics all over the car, and, and we the, the actual Porsche 935 that's in Project Cars 2 has the sound of, of my car. Oh, okay. So that was fun. I got to drive around the track a, a little bit. Sure. Yeah. And uh, and how did can we talk about how would you know, record your lap time then to go against the greats that have that get the no, stick? No, we didn't. No, I don't think I did the full lap anyway. It's just tooling. We were mostly going up and down the runway. Just running out to do the speed check. Sure. Yeah. And then, so what uh, else were some of the other cars then that you liked, and aside from the Porsche, did you, uh, the Group 5 cars, which are the Group 5 cars that you were able to get the licenses for? Well, in Project Cars 1, there were two Group 5 cars already in the Zach Speed Capri and the BMW 320i Turbo. So those were already in. Um, but the philosophy with Project Cars in general was to have complete grids of cars to be able to recreate different eras of, of racing. So um, with the Group 5 cars, we're able to add um, the Nissan Skyline Super Silhouette, the uh, Datsun 280ZX V8 Turbo that uh, Paul Newman drove in the 1981 IMSA Camel GT season. And then uh, we also added the Ferrari 512 BB LM, which just came out recently. And then there's quite a few different Porsche 935 variations as well. And then how challenging is it to get to secure these the deals for the cars or however it would work. I mean, well, there you have to know how to do international business. You have to be able to sit down with a company like Lamborghini or Ferrari and do an international level of business to have them trust you, to have them respect what you're doing, um, and then work through the contracts in order to do, to do these licensing deals. And I imagine it's not... It's, imagine the contracts are obviously very short, very small, no, no big words in there whatsoever. Definitely not. No, some of them are very, very long. <laughs> um, but that, that's part of um, my progression in my career. I've had to learn how to do international business, my background being more creative, artistic. So um, that's one thing that was a, was a good thing. But we also replicated aspects of the Group C IMSA GTP era. We... Um, I shouldn't say we anymore because I don't work with SMS these days. But another another uh, era of racing, which is fantastic, was uh, the 1970-71 uh, World Sports Car Championship, especially Le Mans. We, we put the Le Mans in 1970. I said we again. Ah. You can't help it. It's that jet lag. Yeah. Uh, but the Le Mans 1971 configuration was created along with uh, uh, quite a few different cars that, that raced uh, in 1971 as well. Ferrari 512. M, Ferrari 512S Cotalunga, long tail, and then two versions of the, get, we got crazy, two versions, I said we again, the Porsche 917K, Porsche 917LH, the, the long tail, and then the Porsche 9083, oh wait, that didn't race at Le Mans in its, that configuration. And then we um, got together some GT cars as well for the background, like the Ferrari Daytona, and then we had a Slightly wrong. We had the 911 um, RS, 1973 spec, and it should have been. If you're getting crazy, that should have been the 911 S. But anyway, 
close enough within two yeah, years. Exactly, it's close yeah. enough at that point. So then, what? Where did? How did the switch come about to be going from project cars to where you are now with Robo Race? Well, the, there was uh, some discussion between Robo Race and SMS about a potential collaboration, but it never happened. But as part of that, I met the founder and uh, Dennis Sverdlov. I don't pronounce his last name very well. I have to work on my Ru Russian pronunciation. And um, we became friends for about a year. We just hung out. And uh, I, I, I found the, the concept very fascinating. And, but I wanted to deliver Project Cars too. But after that, um, it was time to look at something different. I also had been in the game industry for some time and media industry as well, if you look at Speed Hunters and um, related projects. So I wanted to expand my horizons and also get into working on a startup. And, and that was something different after being in this big company, EA, and then working on the different games. Uh, it was something time to do something new. And so how did Dennis sell it to you then, since he seems like he sold you pretty well on it? I don't think he sold it Oh, I just sort of... No, I just saw, that's, that's the best I saw what they were doing. The best salesman. He didn't sell me anything. No, we, we, it's a kindred spirit, I oh, would okay. say. Um, he's, he's so much about innovation and really driving forward a vision of the, the future. So I know that we can't talk too much about Robo Race in specifics, but in general, to give our, the listeners here the idea of what you guys are hoping to do, what's, the, what's your pitch and how would you describe it when you're talking to people in international business? You could say that Robo Race is a, a platform, both real and virtual, uh, for human and machine um, teams to compete. Now, the, the purpose there is to progress um, automated driving technologies you might say autonomous driving technologies, but the cars aren't really autonomous because you're telling them where to go. They don't have free free will. But um, ADS, uh, autonomous driving technologies, the goal there is to push the technology through competition. Now, if you look back to the history of racing, you can see that this is one of the key roles that, that motorsports has had in the story of the car. When these horseless carriages first showed up in the late 1800s, um, people didn't know what they were. They were very confused, um, and they didn't seem that reliable. There was a law in the UK that uh, a person had to carry a flag and walk in front of the car um, because people were so confused by them. But then they broke down all the time. If you turn the hand crack the wrong way, it might break your arm. Um, very unsafe things. But it, it was through the first organized races were city to city, and um, it was through racing that the public was able to see the, um, the car is becoming more uh, reliable. But also competition has uh, fueled so many different engineering solutions, whether the first uh, rear view mirror was in the, um, I think around 1916 or so, or 1913, um, at Indian, Indy 500. Um, a famous example is 1953 Le Mans, the, the Jaguar team showed up with the, these, these cars that had some special brake on it, the disc brake, no one had ever seen it before. And then that was adopted by the road industry. And there's so many examples of that where an engineering solution showed up first on the racetrack, it was perfected, and then eventually moved over to uh, passenger vehicles. Or it may have been invented elsewhere, but it was uh, showcased um, in, uh, on the racetrack. So a good example of that is uh, radial tires. Those were really heavily pushed in the 70s by Michelin 
with the, the Renault F1 team in the late 70s. And also a BF Goodrich uh, in the mid 70s was, was pushing those as well with the Greenwood Corvettes. And um, it was through these programs that the public was able to hear about these new tires, radial tires. Same with turbocharging. Porsche really started pushing that in the, um, the Can-Am from 1972, 73 season, and then 74 onward with the Porsche 911 RSR Turbo, taking that to Le Mans and so forth. And then in 1975, the Porsche 911 Turbo came out. The rest is history. Or Renault brought, in 1977, they brought this turbocharged car out to Formula One. Thing blew up for three years, but eventually you couldn't show up to a Formula One race without a turbo. And then the rest is history, as we know. So those are good examples of engineering solutions either being um, innovated first on the racetrack or uh, racing is used to promote it to the public. And for RoboRace, this is, we're trying to get back to this because racing now is not so much about engineering now. It's more about uh, marketing. And there's very little correlation between true innovation happening on the racetrack and today's road vehicles. They're usually banned. You think of something new, or there's no way you can do it. So we want to create a, an open platform, at least in terms of software, for different groups to come in and, um, and bring those to the, the racetrack through competition and create a safe place to fail in many ways. Right now, if a autonomous car crashes, it's, it's headline news all around the world. But uh, if that happens on the racetrack, it's not that big a deal. It's expected. Um, so it's through competition that we'll, we, sh we should see, um, once we get going with the robo race competitions, the acceleration of technology, and also showcasing the state of the technology to the audience. If they can see how these um, these, uh, these cars, self-driving cars, are doing in comparison to humans. Are they slow? Are they faster? Can they overtake? Can they drive cleanly? Can they prove to the audience and, and to the public that the technology is ready? So we want, to, uh, that we want to do this. We want to show this. So that is the purpose of RoboRace. And you have already had the chance to, to put a RoboRace car around a track, correct, one of the Formula E events this year? Yes, we've been working with Formula E for uh, two years now. Um, so we, we've uh, done that a few times. But what we've tried it to do is more have structured competitions in different formats this year. So at the Formula E Rome event, um, we brought uh, the professional drifter Ryan Turk out, and he, um, he drove the car. You can just Google that, Ryan Turk uh, Robo Race. And, and then he set a lap time, and then we had the uh, ADS drive the car, and uh, we could compare. He was about, I think, 15 seconds a lot faster or so. And then we did our first um, test competition in, uh, at Formula e Berlin this past May. And we have a film coming out uh, quite shortly um, that will show what happened there. So for that, we, we used a time attack format. We had two drivers per car, with two cars, so two teams. One driver was a human. The other one was the, uh, the machine driver. And they both set lap times, and we averaged the lap times, and that's how we picked a winner between the two. I see. And then I know that uh, you've talked a little bit about where you see the future of this sort of uh, robo-race going. What, how, if we would explain that to the listeners, how would you see that in regards to 
this extension of virtual reality and augmented reality coming together? Well, we sometimes tell people that um, mobile race isn't quite motorsports. Because we're trying to look at aspects of racing and the history of racing, but we don't want to just replicate what's happened in the past. We need to create new formats, new experiences for racing fans. So we're, we're looking at aspects of motorsports. We're also looking at aspects of gaming and, and uh, sim racing, esports. And we're bringing these two things together to create something new. That's what RoboRace is in many ways. Um, so our aim is to reinvent uh, spectating or how fans experience racing events. So I, I, let me ask you a question. Do you think racing is exciting to go to? Or are you in spite of being a race fan, as I find it kind of boring these days. I will sure. say some forms of motorsport are not quite as entertaining as other forms of motorsport. I like to be diplomatic when I answer yeah, this one. that's true. But for me, on a whole, I mean, I, I, I want something more than what I'm getting now when I'm sitting on a grandstand. Um, and if you look back on, on say, say we imagine it's 1970, we're going to a Formula One race at Brands Hatch. I don't know we, if there were Brands Hatch or Silverstone that year, but let's pretend it was at Brands It was Hatch. very close, the racing. You were very close to track. There was lots of action happening. You yeah. didn't quite know what was going to happen. The thing to notice I think it's a fair is assessment that to going say. to, uh, imagine we're going to a race in 1970, and, and we compare it, we say, okay, that's an entertainment experience for someone. We compare that to other entertainment experiences that you could have at the time. It's probably going to be one of the most exciting things you could do. But that format of sitting on a grandstand, watching cars go around in circles, hasn't really changed. Um, but other entertainment experiences have developed. You can now go become a stormtrooper in virtual reality on a team and be inside the stars universe for 15, a 15 minute uh, mission. It's incredible. Um, there's so many amazing things you can do now. But the racing experience, being a spectator at a racing event just hasn't evolved. So this is part of our aim is to look at new immersive technologies, augmented reality, uh, VR, and create completely new interactive experiences that happen on location, but also find completely new ways for there to be gaming experiences that are happening in parallel as well. So does this mean that we could expect to see someone throwing bananas in Robo Race coming forward? I, I think that there's many aspects of Mario Kart that, that are absolutely amazing that that should be happening definitely the, the idea of power-ups yep the the idea that um that different things happening on track affect what what happens with the car and formula e now is is they've announced for season five that they're going to have this area that you can drive off and you get a power-up when, when you go on the special part of the track but we want to take that one step further and, and use um have virtual, or sorry, augmented reality um, power-ups that you can you can throw onto the track and give, get a boost to the car that you're uh, supporting, or have virtual machines that are on track at the same time, uh, virtual I, drone battles in the sky above. I will say that I do like that Formula E have uh, got the the fan push or what is it, the fan boost? I think it's mm. called. I think that's a, that's been a great idea. Yeah. I'd like that, to see that that, that, happen more. that just shows. The first step of what's exactly, possible. Exactly, yeah. So I yeah. think that's was an idea, is a great yeah. idea to move it forward from yeah. there. So if anyone is wanting to find out more about you, Rod, or itself about Robo Race, where's the best place to find these things out? 
Oh, there's not that much information about me out there. Okay, so you said you know, everyone's going to listen to this podcast then and hear yeah. all about it. <laughs> uh, I've been interviewed for aspects of RoboRace and Project Cars and things like that, but I mostly just talk about the projects. But I don't think I'm that interesting, really. It's more about the, the project that that's important. Um, but the best place to find out more about RoboRace is to go to the, our YouTube uh, channel and watch some of the, um, the films, especially the most recent films. There you can get a sense of what we're about. And then when's every, when should we say the big announcement is going to be happening for RoboRace? Is that next year? Is that when you were talking about that? That we might be hearing more depth in what's going forward there? Yeah, we've, uh, there was an Autosport article that came out maybe two weeks ago or so um, from our CEO, Lu Lucas Degrassi. And he uh, talks a little bit about our plans for next year. So we're hinting a little bit about what we're going to do there. Um, the, the lights just went out. The I know. Here. I was like, that's very, uh, is it uh, trying to make it's, us leave? Is that what's happening? Very, it's very romantic. Um, so there'll be some announcements happening uh, later in the year and then early next year about our plans. But our goal is to launch our first competitions n next year. And um, so that that's where the announcements are going to be. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Rod, thank you so much for, for making the time for today. I very much appreciate it and for you battling through your jet lag. Fantastic. And then we should go buy some Hot Wheels. I think that sounds like a great idea. But uh, <laughs> in the meantime, people, you need to certainly go find us at NoBreaking, N-O-B-R-K-I-N-G.com or at NoBreaking on Facebook and Instagram. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please make sure you leave us a very positive review, at least six or seven stars out of five. It's all we expect, nothing less. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.